0: So, I, I did not grow up taking many road trips uh, with my, in my family, but over the last 10 to 12 years, I've gotten a taste of how formative road trips can be for a family, for friends. And part of this has been listening to some of you talk about road trips in your family. I have heard about endless and epic Velker adventures on road trips. I, I think the last one, just a few weeks ago with Dan and Aubrey, there was some sort of fume in the car That Dan was like, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. Everybody was going to be okay. And Jenny here at home was like, I hope they come back alive. Uh, And then I've heard that the Davises camper smells like teenage boys after a few days, right, on the road. Is that about right? (laughs) Here's my theory about road trips. That road trips are like initiation. They're like initiation into a way of life. The Velker way. The Davis way or whatever way it may be. So outside of road trips with Katie, most of mine have been with this good friend who's also uh, a mentor. We've taken several 18- to 20-hour adventures together, either west to Colorado or east from Louisiana to the Canaan Valley of West Virginia. I've only learned to say that correctly since living here. Um, And this friend always schedules strategic stops along the way. ...when we go on a trip. So on the way to Colorado with a youth group, we'd schedule these cultural experiences. We'd stop off in Santa Fe and all, you know, empty out of the van... ...and give everybody a couple of hours to explore. Um, Or we'd stop at a random diner off the historic Route 66... uh, ...that cuts across Texas and New Mexico. The most memorable stops were probably these desolate West Texas towns... ...where we'd walk into a local diner with like 20 teenagers... And the locals would just sit and stare, kind of gawking, like, what are they doing here? And then in one case, they invited all of us back to their vacation Bible school that night. It was very funny and a good experience for the kids. Um, on a trip with this same friend to West Virginia, to Canaan Valley, we would stop for dinner with one friend in Birmingham. If you know of David Platt, this guy who's written Radical, lots of very popular in the evangelical world. We'd stop off for dinner at David, with David Platt and then we'd drive all night and we'd get to this com- town in Virginia that I had never heard of at the time t- called Harrisonburg and we'd have breakfast with a guy named Aubrey that I did not know. So a- again, my theory is that road trips are like initiation and in my case, this rings especially true because after I made the road trip, I eventually moved, right? So this was initiation for me into a way of life. Um... I could go on with this, and I won't go on too long, but for instance, I I also went with this friend. This wasn't a road trip necessarily, but we flew to Uganda for a couple of weeks, and this friend, he grew up overseas a lot and just lives a different life. He told me, don't pack any deodorant. You just need a backpack with a couple of sets of clothes. Don't bring any deodorant. I I did not go into that way of life. Like, I wasn't fully initiated into his ways, Um, but we we stopped off in London on both sides of the trip and explored all of London there are just parts of these trips that I will never forget and that have changed me in a big way because of the trips I I plan trips differently so when Katie and I were making our move from Louisiana to Massachusetts I wanted to schedule all these strategic t- stops but we had also found out that Katie we just found out that Katie was pregnant with Samuel and it was here that I learned that when a pregnant woman says she's hungry She's not waiting for the next strategic stop. She wants to stop now. (laughs) But nevertheless, this is the third Sunday in the season of Lent, a season in which Christians are trying to enter more fully into the life of Jesus and the way of Jesus in this world. Now, how does Jesus initiate people into his way in the world? Well, he takes his disciples on their own literal road trip. And to show you this, if you have your Bible, will you take it and open it to Mark chapter 8? Just before the passage, we re- a little bit before the passage, we read this just a few moments ago. Um, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And if you'll look closely at the second part of this verse, Mark chapter 8, verse 27, it says, And on the way, Jesus asked his disciples... Who do people say that I am? If you like to underline in your Bible, I encourage you to underline these these three words, on the way. This little phrase does not appear very important at all, but that little phrase is used nine times between right here and Mark chapter 12. Nine times between right here and Mark chapter 12. It's used twice in our section this morning where Jesus says, What were you discussing on the way? And then the disciples remained silent because on the way they were talking about who was the greatest. This is one of Mark's ways of drawing us in close and making sure we're paying attention. It's a way for Mark to say that Jesus wants to initiate all of us into his way of life. And that following Jesus will be a journey. Like any road trip, it will require time, commitment, and an openness to adventure. An openness to the unknown. Now what is this way? The phrase is, on the way. What what is the way? Well, it's the way of the cross. Three times in this on the way section, Jesus tells the disciples, He's going to Jerusalem where He will give up His life where he will be killed, and then three days later he'll be raised from the dead. Our passage this morning is the second time that Jesus has done this. There'll be one more. And here's another key part of this. Every time that Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, and he's going to be killed, uh, they express some disbelief, and then they do something really silly. Like Peter after says, Jesus, you can't do this. And Jesus has to tell him, get behind me, Satan. And then in this case... After he's told them, the disciples are having this conversation about which one of them is the greatest. This would be akin to uh, all the Napotnik boys having a conversation in front of Stephen, like about the inheritance. Like, can we get this, can we speed this along a little bit? What are we gonna get? And then uh, the next time, it's a very similar thing that they don't understand what's going on. Now, this morning, we get to listen in to a conversation about greatness. On the way of the cross. Is it possible to live a life of greatness and go the way of the cross? Can these things coexist? a, A sacrificial way of life and yet a great way of life. Of course, all of us want to feel as if we're leading a meaningful life. Like we're contributing to the world in a significant way. And it's actually interesting to me, a a little bit odd, that when Jesus responds to the disciples and gives them this this rebuke after they've been arguing, Jesus doesn't actually condemn their desire to be great, does He? He only redirects that desire. He affirms it, but He redirects the path to greatness. This morning, I, I want us to look at what greatness a meaningful life looks like on the way of the cross. And I think the first thing that needs to be said here is that if we're to learn real greatness, if we're to find the most meaningful life, we first have to allow Jesus to be our teacher. And even more specifically, we have to allow Jesus to teach us new things, things we've never thought before. Now, if you have your Bible open, I'm drawing here from first verse 30 and 31 where we're told that Jesus didn't want anyone to know where he was because he was teaching his disciples. He was teaching them. And then I'm also drawing from the end of the passage where Jesus sits down, calls his disciples around him, and teaches them about greatness in the kingdom. Let me explain what I mean when I say that we have to allow Jesus to teach us new things. Don't you think it's even a little bit odd That the disciples are continually confused when Jesus tells them he's going to die. What's confusing about I'm going to die? What's confusing about this? I I don't mean to be crude, but what part of it do you think they could not understand? Jesus is straightforward every time. Now this is where I think we have to really strive to appreciate how utterly shocking, counterintuitive, and worldview shattering was this idea of a suffering Messiah. We can't just look on them from the outside and say, they're so so ignorant. They're so hard-hearted. We have to enter in with them. The disciples expected Jesus to be a military hero, not a suffering servant. And everything in their culture pushed in this direction. So it didn't matter how clearly Jesus told them about His coming death and resurrection. They were not able to hear it because the whole weight of their lives pointed in an opposite way. Now, how did they eventually learn this new thing? Well, they went on the way with Jesus all the way to the cross, and then Jesus revealed himself to them in the resurrection. And when he rose from the dead, and then those days after... It was as if he had opened up a brand new door that the disciples had never even seen before. A door they did not know was there. And they began to understand everything in a new way. They realized that many of their assumptions had been wrong. And that up until now they were blind and they didn't even know it. And down the road the disciples are still going to have new things to learn. They don't get it all infused on them in the resurrection, all this new knowledge. For instance, they're going to be shocked to learn that the disciples are to be equal members of God's family. Excuse me. They're going to be shocked to learn that the Gentiles are to be equal members in God's family. They don't learn this until Acts chapter 10, a while after the resurrection. They're also going to have to learn that circumcision, a very important law in Judaism, is not necessary for salvation. We could go on about the things that they would continue to have to learn. The point is that Jesus opens their mind to see something new, but He doesn't give them everything at once. They never could have handled it. And so He does it slowly. Again, I, I think it's easy for us to be hard on the disciples. How did they not understand? And yet surely... Surely there are things that we don't understand too, aren't there? Surely there are ways of thinking that we're so stuck in we can't even see it. I would try to give you an example, but I I can't because we don't know it. So there's a popular evangelical pastor named John Piper, and one of John Piper's heroes is a man named Jonathan Edwards. Um, Jonathan Edwards, people would say, is the most influential American pastor in history. Um, Now, Jonathan Edwards also owned slaves. This was a time when slavery was prominent throughout the country. And John Piper was one time asked, "What, what do you say about Jonathan Edwards and slavery? And John Piper's response would be, Every generation has blind spots. The greater question is, what will the next generations be saying about us? That's a hard question to ask. We don't know our blind spots. Even with the Holy Spirit, there are still things that we're blind to about ourselves and about the world. So here's the question. How do we learn to hear new things from Jesus? How do we let Him speak into our blindness? Just like the disciples, we have to go on the way with Him. We have to go on the full journey. We commit to the lifelong road trip of life with Christ as our King and our Lord. And we have to be gracious to ourselves and to each other. The point is not to uh, cast judgment on each other about the things that we're missing. The point is to realize that this takes time. It takes commitment. It takes an openness to adventure and to learning the new things. And just like Jesus showed new things to those stiff-minded disciples, He can show new things to us. Now here's the crucial skill, I think, in learning new things. Listening. This is the crucial skill in being able to hear new things from Jesus. It's listening. New things from anyone to have our heart and mind changed we have to be open we have to open our ears and our heart to another person right jesus can only be our teacher in the context of relationship in the context of us attending to his voice in scripture attending to him in prayer attending to his voice through other christians I think we need to admit that if we are not attentive to Scripture nor to focused prayer and we don't listen for Jesus' voice, it's much less likely that we we will ever be able to hear new things from Him. If we're not on the way with Him, we won't be able to hear new things from Him. And here's what's very sad. When we refuse to learn new things our lives become more shallow. We become more diminished people. Instead of growing in wisdom with age, we stagnate with age. But at the same time, if we develop the ability to listen to Jesus and to hear Him, it's absolutely certain, it is guaranteed, we will develop a deeper and more meaningful life. And we will discover real greatness. The key skill it's listening, learning to listen. So let me ask you, is Jesus your teacher in that you attend to his voice? You listen for him. You allow him to speak authoritatively into your life and even alter your course. Your life in some ways would not make sense apart from the fact that you are in relationship to Jesus and you listen to him. Now, here's one clue that we still still have a good deal of room to grow in this. If, like the disciples, instead of listening to Jesus, we're caught up in comparing ourselves to others. See, I think this is why the disciples weren't able to understand Jesus. Because while He's trying to teach them about the way of the cross, they're caught up in who's the greatest. The scene is so ironic that it's funny in a dark way. Jesus trying to explain His death and the disciples bickering over who's the favorite. Who's going to get to lead this crew after He's gone? But again, I'm, I'm fascinated by this other irony. Jesus doesn't condemn their desire for greatness. He does not. So what does greatness, a meaningful life, look like on the way of the cross? First, it looks like Jesus being our teacher and opening us up to new things. And second it looks like respect for others, not rivalry with others. So the disciples' argument over who's the greatest will by definition mean that someone will have to be the worst, right? Are we going to let the disciples... Are they going to line up afterward? The greatest is here and then just go down with who's worst from there? This is part of the game. This is competition. Now... I love competition probably too much. So my only broken bone was from a racquetball match. And I did score the point when I broke the bone. And then one of Katie and I's early marital spats was over a board game that I was losing. And I thought she was trying to help out one of the other competitors. Now, competition isn't inherently bad, is it? The best competition pushes us to the limits of our ability and it enables us to accomplish these amazing feats. Think of Tom Brady in a Super Bowl down all game and then you go into the fourth quarter and yet you're still nervous. Why should you still have to be nervous? He's been losing all game, but he's that good. And nobody enjoys this except Glenn, right? Except for when he doesn't come through in the fourth quarter. I'm just kidding. Even if you don't like it, it can be impressive to watch. Think Sean White's gold medal snowboarding run at the Olympics. He needed nearly a perfect run to be able to win, and he pulled it off. A 97 score. It was amazing. And there's not only athletic competition, though. There's also intellectual competition. Who's going to be first in the class? Is it bad to want to be first? There's business competition. The list could go on. But there is a point where competition turns nasty. This is when competition's purpose is to shame others. When the intent isn't only for us to do well, but for others to do worse than us. For them to fail. And this is when sports competitions degenerate into cheating and crude trash talking. I was hearing on the radio yesterday the Iditarod, the... The um, race in Alaska, the dog sledding race, they're in trouble for dogs doping now. What, how can you spoil a dog sledding race? It also gets ugly when a loss makes us feel as if we're less. And this is the disciples' attitude and their comparisons to each other. All those who aren't the greatest will be less than the one he, who is. And the ones who are less will be left just to envy the ones who are the greatest. Wishing they could be like him or her. Is this really the way the world works? If we're not the best, we lose. I think this is how some of us feel. We compare ourselves to others and if we don't see what another has, we feel an insufficiency within us. A gaping absence. A wound. This is the lie that Jesus corrects. Respect affirms the dignity of the other, even if they're in competition with each other. Rivalry and envy, though, they want to belittle the other. They want to win at the other's expense. The way of the cross, though, is the genuine way to life and true greatness. So Jesus says, if you really want to be great, if you want to be first, you must be last, servant of all. See, the point of competition isn't to diminish each other, even though the brokenness of the world and the disease of sin have moved competition in that direction. The point of competition, of having any power in this world, is to bring life. So, what does greatness and a meaningful life look like on the way of the cross? It, It looks like having Jesus as our teacher, opening us up to these new and deeper ways of living. It looks like respect for ourselves and for others, not rivalry and envy. But lastly, it looks like a nearness to the vulnerable. A nearness to the vulnerable. I like to picture Jesus in this scene. Disciples shamed into silence because they know there was something inappropriate about the conversation they were having. It's like God calling Adam out of hiding in the garden after he had sinned. Jesus calls out the disciples. What were you talking about on the way? And of course, he knows absolutely what they were talking about. They don't have to answer. But he wanted them to feel it just a little bit more. Have you ever felt ashamed of yourself in such a way that you had nothing to say? It's naked and exposed. Everyone knows and you feel it. But then, Jesus sits down. If you read the passage so closely, it's so beautiful. He sits down. He calls them in closer. Can you see Him doing this? He sits down and calls them in closer. A true man among men who are all wounded. And He tells them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then there must have been a child playing just nearby. And he, he, he brings the child into the middle of the circle. He wraps the child in his arms and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. It's easy for me to get sentimental at this point. Jesus loves children. We should love children too. That would not have been the reaction in this moment. Sadly, societies like this one with a high infant mortality rate and great demand for human labor, they couldn't afford to be sentimental about infants and youth. Sadly, they could not. Children were more functional. They were a drain until they could contribute in some way. But Jesus was teaching His disciples that their own greatness would be found in staying close to those who are insignificant. Staying close to those who are vulnerable to being forgotten. Even more, Jesus tells them that He identifies with those who are most insignificant in the eyes of the world. So much so that He's mysteriously present wherever the vulnerable are welcomed. Hear Jesus, again, when you receive such a person, you actually receive me, but not me. You receive him who sent me, the Father. So our treatment of the lowly and the nobodies of this world is actually the measurement of how we treat God himself. Who do you think Jesus would pick up today if he came in the middle of us? And he was teaching us about greatness. Who would he pick up? Would it be children who are in broken homes, those who are turned over to the foster care system, who are vulnerable to being forgotten about, mistreated? Maybe he would would hug a lonely widow. Maybe he would hug a teenage mother who feels shame, regret, and some amount of hopelessness about the future of her life you know what, maybe one day Jesus would pick up me or you. Because one of us will eventually come to the other in a state of seeming helplessness, sickness and sadness. And when we embrace the other in that moment, it will be similar to embracing the Lord Jesus Himself. That's what Jesus is saying. That when you receive such a person, you are receiving Me. And you're receiving my Father. You know, I feel a sense of this when I'm with Fran right now and her frustration and her longing to be well, and yet her vulnerability and weakness. When I'm with her, there's a sense that the Lord Jesus is right there struggling with her, and I get to experience Him as I'm with her. God gave humans, all of us, the desire for some greatness so that we could use it to bring a greater experience of life to each other and to the creation itself. This is why I used the the verses from Romans 12, because Paul there says, outdo one another in showing honor. The competition is still there, but the competition is used to bring each other life, greater well-being. But because of sin, this pursuit of greatness is often twisted. And instead of working to bring life to others, we feel the need to self-protect. Look, this can be as simple as withholding a compliment from someone because we're fearful that we'll lose a sense of our own power if we do that. I want to give you one example to close. The story of Eric Liddell is beautifully compelling to me. If you haven't watched the movie Chariots of Fire, you should. It was a best picture, I believe, in the early 80s. Liddell was born to to missionary parents, and he was an amazing athlete. One of his quotes used in the movie was, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. He won a gold and bronze medal in the 1924 Paris Olympics. And then in 1925, he went to China as a missionary. Uh, He would train children in sports, but he would also teach them about the way of Jesus. And during World War II, Liddell served the youth and elderly in internment camps where there were food shortages and a lack of medical supplies. And this would actually lead to Liddell's own death just before the end of the war. But remarkably... His legacy lives on as this man of incredible athletic gifting, but even deeper love. So the Chinese have even claimed him as their first Olympic champion. A Scottish man. This is a picture of greatness on the way of the cross. Excellence, of course. But most of all, excellence in loving others and bringing greater life to others. Students, you're soon going to be choosing college or your career. And a few of the questions that will motivate your decision are, what gifts do I have? And what does it mean to do meaningful work? And what is greatness? And Jesus, you should know, is right in the middle of these questions, cheering on your desire to do meaningful work, to be good at it. And within that work, he's calling you to remember the needs of the world that he died for. To let your work bring you closer to those who are forgotten and those who are vulnerable. Now, What does greatness, a meaningful life, look like on the way of the cross? It looks like Jesus being our teacher. Opening us up to new and fascinating ways of seeing Him, the world and others. It looks like respect for each other rather than envy and rivalry with each other. It looks like nearness to the vulnerable because it's with the vulnerable that Jesus has chosen to identify Himself. And it's in being close to the vulnerable and their struggles that we're better able to see Jesus' face and hear His voice. Because Jesus is the one who is truly great and yet became vulnerable for us. And He calls us to become vulnerable ourselves so that we might learn to find true life and true greatness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.